This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness would not end in death. No, it is for the God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in daylight will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went to them and said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been in Mary in her house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell to his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews see, said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could he... Not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away this stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there will be a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm not sure who wins the Spirit Award on that one. Dane for having the longest reading ever, or Nikki for being able to hold the gospel book for that long. Don't mess with Nikki, guys. It's been working out with that book. This evening we find ourselves studying the edges of Holy Week. We are entering the season of Passion Tide, which will carry us through Holy Week until Easter Sunday. And surrounding this section in John's Gospel that we just heard read this evening, there is the dark cloud of execution plots being hatched by the Judean authorities. We see it right before we started reading, and right after our reading ended, they begin hatching again. We're going to consider this episode in John's Gospel with the following frame. See how he loved them, see how they trust him, and see how the Father hears him and reveals his glory. We'll begin with see how he loved them. Toward the beginning of this episode, we learn that Lazarus is gravely ill, and his sisters send a prayer to Jesus. But it's a prayer that makes no request. It's just a simple statement. The one you love is sick. Right out of the gate, I think we are being given a picture of what it looks like to be a disciple. Mary and Martha, at least at this stage of the story, simply trust that the love of Jesus will compel him to do what he thinks is right regarding their brother. Now, as we'll see later on, their assumption is that in trusting Jesus' love, they will be vindicated as he arrives in time to heal their brother from sickness and restore him to them, which of course does not happen in the way that they expect. John does something very strange in his language in the setup of this story. He goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus loved Martha, that he loved her sister, and that he loved Lazarus. And even in the way that he wrote the sentence originally, he does it in such a way to make you slow down as you read it and really hear it. Jesus really loves these three siblings. But here's how John writes the story. Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. Jesus loves, loves, loves Lazarus and his sisters. And therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed right where he was and didn't move an inch for the next 48 hours. Of course, as the story unfolds, we start to realize that this delay of Jesus results in deep sorrow and trauma for Martha and Mary as they watch their brother die. The language and behavior of Jesus in this story are so confounding that it has actually caused some interpreters to wonder at the seeming callousness of Jesus. 
it really seems kind of off, right? When he tells the disciples he's dead and I'm glad for your sakes. I think it seems off to us because we, like Mary and Martha, have a particular understanding of both what the love of Christ should look like and also what death is. See, when we think of death, we think of it as the end, most of us and most of our culture. So much so, in fact, that when Jesus says early on in this chapter that Lazarus' sickness would not end in death, we immediately start thinking, did he really not know what was going to happen? How can the Son of God be so wrong? But even in this brief statement, I think Jesus is laying down the foundation for a reorientation toward death because he was 100% right. The sickness didn't end in death. It passed through death. What Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that death is not the end that we all think that it is. Similarly, when we think of love, we think of being kept from any and all heartache. We think of someone who drops everything and comes right away when we alert them to our need. So why is it that not just Mary and Martha, but likely all of us at some point in our lives have experienced this traumatic lateness of Jesus, where he just does not seem to show up when we need him. Several years ago, my wife and I were pregnant with our first child, and every morning I would wake up with this newfound sense of expectation and joy as I tried to sort of imagine out what life was going to be like for our family with a new kid in the house. And despite me having these, these sort of brief moments of awareness and joy that something was about to change, it was nothing compared to the infinitely deeper way that my wife experienced a bond with this tiny little child taking form inside of her. For Lindsay, it wasn't just dreams and visions. There was a heart beating. There were blood vessels taking shape. There was a person being formed. And we made it past the 10-week mark, and we started to tell everybody we knew the good news and the day before Palm Sunday that, that year, we lost the baby. And I was helpless, right? I just had to watch the pain and anguish in my wife's face. And the only thing that I could say over and over and over was, Jesus, I need you to be here now. Stop this. I had a friend tell me later that, of course, Jesus was there, just maybe in a way that I couldn't recognize. And in a certain sense, he may have been right. But I still believe that Jesus didn't show up. Not in the way that I thought I needed him to. He didn't. And in that moment, he became for me, for the first time in my life, haphazard. I couldn't hem him in in a way that, that would bring me solace. Some of you have been praying for years that God would bring you a spouse, someone with whom you can share life, and every once in a while someone enters in and there's all this new hope and joy that, that starts to build up and then whew, the flame is extinguished again. 
Some of you have been trying to have children or have lost children, and for years you cry and pray together asking Jesus to bring wholeness to your family. Some of you have been praying for years for reconciliation with a friend or a parent or for an unbelieving loved one to come to faith. And the silence on the other end of the line becomes unsettling. And somewhere in each of our lives, we are asking that question, can these bones really live? Every time we seem to get hope, we seem to be met with more death. What could the love of Christ mean in these moments? What did it mean to Mary and Martha as they waited for days for him to show up? I think this story reveals to us a couple of things about the love of Christ. And the first is that in response to the pain, self-destructiveness, and death of humanity, Jesus enters into that same pain and death in a way that he himself is not exempted from. He doesn't just come away, come in and do away with pain. He undergoes pain himself. John tells us twice in this story that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And it's a, it's a tough word to really capture in translation, but the idea is that he was filled with a sorrowful enragement. That he is angry and mad and sad all at the same time. And in two words, John offers one of the most profound Christological statements of the New Testament in this scene. Jesus wept. At the very least, this reminds us that for us to feel a sense of sorrow and anger at death and all her cousins is not unchristian. Beyond that, it reveals to us that Jesus was truly and fully a human being. He had real friendships, real love that webbed him together with other people, and losing those people caused him pain and sorrow and anger at the specter of death that had brought ruin to every generation of his people. But the other way that this story reveals to us the love of Christ in the midst of sorrow is that it's not really a story about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. The way that John has set up this story is bookended in the exact same way that he bookends Christ's own crucifixion and resurrection. This story is about what's about to happen to Jesus. And it's interesting to hear the words that Jesus says in this story when we remember that in his dereliction on the cross, having been abandoned by all of his closest friends, he cries out to his father. The one who here, Jesus says, always hears me. And he says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The love of God for the world pushed God the Son into that place. When we encounter pain and it seems as if Jesus is not showing up according to what we think is on time, it is not a signal that his love is somehow gone. Though it can feel very upending. The truth of his love is seen in that cry of dereliction. Did the Father stop loving the Son in that moment? Not a chance. 
We'll come back to that in a moment. But first I want us to see also how they trust him. As I hinted at before, the very way that Mary and Martha send their message to Jesus reveals at least a baseline of trust in the goodness of his love. They make no request. They simply tell him that the one he loves is ill and trust that his love will work out whatever is needed. But in the face of his delay, much like us, the sister's faith begins to falter. It's interesting to read commentaries in this passage and watch as interpreters throughout the centuries have tried to sort through the personalities of Mary and Martha, because we know a little bit about each of them from other gospel stories. In Luke's gospel, right, it's Mary who seems to have this unshakable faith in Jesus. She can see right past the immediate, right past everything that's in the way, and do the one thing that's needful, sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him as a disciple. And it's in that scene that Martha is the one who is scattered and weighed down by temporal concerns, unable to enter into the deeper gift that is Christ's presence in her own home. But here in John's scene, Martha is the one who goes out to meet Jesus while Mary is paralyzed with sorrow and stays behind. This paralysis of Mary is actually pretty accurate because the word that Jesus says to her when he, he tells her to get up, is this, or, or, or when it's said that she gets up to go and see him, is the same word as what's used for when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Mary is almost dead with grief, and yet she can even be raised from that depression. Martha, perhaps chidingly, yes, tells Jesus that had he been there, her brother would not have died. But then she follows that up by affirming her belief in the resurrection. Mary's complaint ends with complaint. But it's beautiful to me that when Martha comes back to the home, she says something to Mary that I think each of us who is a follower of Christ could say to almost any other person in our life. The Lord is asking for you. The Lord is asking for you, Mary. If nothing else, this is a good reminder that we as the church need each other. There are seasons and situations in which some of us more readily perceive what Jesus is about and what our task is in response to him. And then at other times, those same people may fail to grasp the hope and joy that he embodies only to be called back by the right response of those next to us who come and say to us, the Lord is asking to see you. He wants you to come and meet with him. Lastly, the crowd shows us that giving mental assent to a reality is not the same as saving faith. In fact, from this moment on, there are some who are present as Lazarus was called out of the tomb, who with what looks like only insanity seek actively to both kill Jesus, who has just defeated death, and to kill Lazarus, who has died once already. Seeing it happen and believing that it happened is not the same as trusting the goodness of the person who made it happen. Martha here is our prime example. In the midst of sorrow and complaint, she still goes to Jesus. She brings her sorrow to him. She brings her sorrow at his lateness to him. 
But most importantly, her faith is taken out of the realm of abstract theology and is placed in a person. When she says that she understands that her brother will be raised the last day, Jesus does not allow her to stay in such a theological state. Instead, he brings her directly into the personal. I am the resurrection and the life. It's been noted that any time Jesus in the gospel accounts comes in contact with the dead, a peculiar thing happens. They all come back to life. The widow's son, the synagogue ruler's daughter, and now Lazarus. And the point of all these stories is the same as the point of what Jesus is telling Martha. Resurrection isn't a theological category. It is a person. Jesus Christ. And I think this is actually a really helpful and necessary way of filling out the story that Western Christians like ourselves tend to tell about the world. The story that we usually hear is that we all stand guilty before God. And Christ comes in and and gets rid of our guilty record and gives us a clean record, and, and we are reconciled. But most of the language is courtroom language, all of which is true and good and a great way to understand what is happening in salvation, but it's not the only way to understand it. Another would be to see the triune God in what, you know, theologians with their big $10 words like to call his eternal aseity his isness. The beingness of God is different than the beingness of everything else because God's existence is not, uh, uh, boy, it's in my notes. I should just look at them. (laughs) Where was I? It's not contingent. Found it. God's existence is not contingent on anything else. Think about all of the things that are required for you to be here. First of all, you had to have parents. They had to have parents, and those parents had to have parents. Not only that, you have to have food, water, oxygen, warmth, etc. to survive. God needs absolutely nothing to exist. This is the key difference. We all have our being in God. So another way of understanding the Christian story of the world is that when human beings turn away from God, it's not just incurring legal guilt, it's a severing from the source of life. So when Jesus comes walking along saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, I am the resurrection and the life, it's not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. He's telling us one of the keenest truths of the universe. There is no life apart from the triune God, and in Christ, we have been invited out of the tomb and into that life. Which, by the way, allows us to see the love of Jesus in a new light. He understands something about the human condition that we don't, which is physical death isn't our greatest problem. It's only a manifestation of a much bigger issue, which is that we have sawn off the limb that we were sitting on in rebelling against God. And that it's in love that Christ comes as resurrection, as life, to rejoin us to the divine life through his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. I want to say it's something like branches and a vine. We're reconnected to the life source of the entire world. 
That's what it means to trust him. That's what happens with Martha. She goes away from understanding resurrection as a theological category that happens to certain kind of people and understands that the person right in front of her is the life of the world. Now see how the Father hears him and reveals his glory. Jesus is the resurrection and the life because of his membership in the divine trinity. But in this scene, as in so many instances in the gospel accounts, Jesus just isn't in his humanity walking around doing whatever sort of magic trick he wants to try to gain attention. No, he's living in his entire person with all of his desires set toward relying only on the Father through the power of the Spirit. And so it is to the Father that Jesus prays and submits in each moment as an expression of the depth of their unity. As Jesus in the pen of John has already told us, the Son can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And get this. He sort of gives, gave some foreshadowing for the story we're looking at this evening. He says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. See how the Father hears him. This unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gives flower to Jesus' trust in his own Father's listening goodness. His active goodwill to hear his Son. And it's such an incredible trust that he speaks it out loud for the benefit of his listeners before anything happens. That's trust. And it is the powerful unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune divine life, that calls forth Lazarus from the dead in the bellowing voice of Jesus. And in Lazarus' resurrection, God's glory is revealed. The problem with that is it presupposes that Lazarus' death is also a revelation of God's glory. Lazarus had to die in order for God's glory to be shown forth to all of those people, and herein lies the greatest paradox of the whole Christian ballgame. You've heard me quote Father John Bear before, but he says, Jesus Christ shows us what it means to be God in the way that he dies as a human being. This is on display in John's Gospel like no other place in Scripture. As I said, this story isn't really about Lazarus and Martha and Mary. It's about what is barreling down the fast lane toward Jesus, or rather, Jesus toward it. It's the crucifixion, which in John's Gospel is the moment of glorification. Over and over again, Jesus keeps saying, the Son of Man must be lifted up, and when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself but it is a liftedness of death, of crucifixion. This is how God chooses to reveal his glory. In 
And it is in this listening posture of God and the way in which he reveals his glory that we again have our understanding of the love of Jesus broadened. The glorious moment of triumph is at first the triumph of Christ's submission to the death that has been hung around all our necks. And now, after Christ's crucifixion, after his resurrection, after his ascension, he is seated at the right hand of his Father who always hears him. And what is he doing there? I'll leave you with the words of St. Paul. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.